Welcome to the Balbury. Working, parenting, playing, voting, advocating, and creating as women. Looking into the mirror, I did not see me. This is me. But as me gradually began to surface, like coming to the surface of a dark pool of water, I began to say, yes, this is me. Whoever this is, is me. This is your host, Suki Wessling. Identity is complicated, yet many people never have to think about it. We form our identity in combination with our genetics, the circumstances of our birth, and the culture we're raised in. For cisgender women today, our identity as women is seldom in question. Modern women know that they can simply be women, whether they choose to marry or not, whether they choose or are able to mother or not, whether gay or straight, working in traditionally female professions or not. My guest, on the other hand, had to look in that mirror and search. Let's meet her. Hi, I'm Sandy Stone, and um, I'm chief engineer for uh, KSQD, first of all. I'm a recovering academic. I'm uh, emerita from the University of Texas at Austin. I'm a performance artist, uh, an author, a uh, computer programmer, and um, just a general idiot about town who um likes to raise hell and get into trouble. And that that's probably the best summary I can give. And who likes good chocolate and is always hunting for it? Sandy Stone is now in her 80s, a community elder respected for her work in sound engineering, academia, and performance. Now she is a fully realized human being. But as a young adult, she built her identity literally out of nothing. When she looked in the mirror, she had to construct what she was seeing because there were no women like her, no role models to help her understand herself. She is a self-described geeky kid who didn't fit in, a person out of time searching for an explanation, a transgender woman who didn't even have the vocabulary to describe herself. In the first part of the program, we'll learn about her childhood, much of it spent in the imaginary world of Girl Island. In the second part, we'll explore her early adulthood, transition, and career. Finally, we'll talk about what she has learned about gender, how she sees young people, and the concept of womanhood today. We started by going back to Sandy's earliest years in the 1940s to a Jewish boy in New Jersey who had no idea who he was and why he was. So much of the current conversation makes a lot of assumptions based on the way things look now. But things looked very different when you were young. So can you talk a little bit about your childhood? And, you know, starting with, did you know that you were transgender? Or I know a lot of trans people describe it as just feeling different, not knowing what it was. And what were the functions of women in your lives? How did you see women then? That's a lot of questions in one. It is. <laughs> There's the thing about feeling different. That's the way that 
a lot of people describe it. I would describe it that way too. Uh, you, you don't really have a language, either verbally or symbolically, for what's going on with you. But in my case, it took the form of wanting to hang out with, if I may use that term, little girls. And at that age, I'm not sure that there's any scientific reason for uh, believing that anyone understands the difference between, quote, little boys and little girls. You're just living in your environment and things are happening and you're trying to make sense out of them. Later on, when I look back at that, I had a model for it, which might actually have been what I was thinking at the time. I had a magical place I went to called Girl Island, which was inhabited entirely by girls, but the girls were doing, we're talking about four, five-year, five-year-old, very small. The island was populated entirely by girls, but they were not doing what girls did when I was a kid. They were doing what boys did when I was a kid, in that they were having adventures, which was a thing girls were not supposed to have. They were swimming, raging rivers and climbing mountains and learning to understand what animals did in the woods and, uh, and on and on and on like that, except that their genders were flipped and except that I was one of them. So we were all girls on Girl Island. One of the best things about talking to Sandy about controversial, difficult topics is her embrace of ambiguity. She's not the person who will tell you exactly the way the world works. In fact, as a founder of the field of gender studies, she won't even take a position on what it means to be transgender. Now, there's no, we have very little medical evidence for how this works. Um, most trans women who have gone through it can only talk about it in terms of this is what happened, this is valid because it was my experience. and. Ultimately, although I've started a field of study around this, and I have studied all the literature I can find about this, I don't have a better explanation at this point than that's the way I felt. So um, that's Girl Island. That's being five years old. That's trying to understand what transgender was. And this leads me to wonder about a, a, a statistic about which there isn't really enough evidence to know if it's real or not. But there's some data that seems to show that women who have been given diethylstilbestrol in their first semester of pregnancy tend to have kids who grow up to be more likely trans women. I, you notice I'm qualifying that a lot. Um, Diethylstilbestrol was given as a way of reducing the possibility of miscarriage. It seemed to be effective for that, but then, as with thalidomide in another case, then this other statistic turned up later. So if you're looking for etiology, there's a possible one because mm -hmm. I don't have any other one to offer you. So what, what was your relationship with your mom like? Do you feel looking back that you had any different relationship with her than, than 
boys would have with their moms? Did you feel like that her being a woman made you had a different sense of of your relationship to her? No, that was not part of the feeling at all. I didn't feel any differently, as far as I know, toward my mother or toward my father. That was all fairly stereotypical, fairly standard. The only difference I can recall was they noticed that I wasn't behaving like the other boys my age. And they were worried that I might grow up gay. So they they never said this, but I mean, looking back on it, I can see that's what was going on with them. So they arranged for me to have a um, an athletic coach who tried to teach me baseball and soccer and manliness is helping get out and play games and do all this. I never wanted to do any of that. And it was uncomfortable and and Uh painful for me to go through that. But I went through it Mm -hmm. and um, it didn't work. It didn't take. Eventually, I, I think I learned how to hit a ball sufficiently that they felt a little better about that. But it was clear that none of that ever really sank in. So once you started going through puberty, when when you're a little kid, like you pointed out, there's really no definition. I mean, we have cultural definitions of how boys and girls are. But when you let boys and girls be who they are, you just, of course, get the whole spectrum of behaviors and interests and mm-hmm. um, boys who like dolls and girls who like baseball. And, you know, this is just the way people are. If you just let them be who they are, they tend to be who they are. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> But then we then we get puberty, and mm-hmm. those hormones are strong. They affect not only how our body feels, but also how we feel emotionally, and also how we start relating to each other. So, talk a little bit about puberty, and you know, because you said that that you felt like you know you had Girl Island. Were you still on Girl Island? Were those girls that were turning into women the same to you, or was there a change? No, they kept growing up on Girl Island, and they did go through puberty. And I I conducted my sad, long fight with puberty, which I lost, and um, didn't quite know what to do about it. And there isn't very much I could say about that period beyond once your body starts to fight you in that way, then you have no choice but to retreat more and more into Girl Island where things are fine all the time. Mm -hmm. That was one aspect of what was going on. The rest of it was just the reasonable rough and tumble of that age, as many people did. Had a horrible high school experience, not because I was potentially trans or anything like that, but just because if one is geekly, uh, high school can be a horrible place. And it was. And I had to deal with that. But that can also take your mind off potential trans issues, which it handily did. And so uh, <laughs> the, the, the teen years went on but because mm-hmm. I was a geek. I was doing normal geekly things at the same time, like building electronic devices and electromechanical devices and all sorts of things of that kind, chemical labs and things that we needn't digress into. (laughs) Uh, 
were the girls on Girl Island like the girls you knew in high school, or were they different? Uh, they were different. They were very much their own people, and that's a good question. They tended to be more direct, more willing to take risks. And this is merely my observation, mind you. Quieter, a lot more centered in themselves. And seeing the Barbie movie where the roles are reversed made me think back upon that, where Ken doesn't really have a good day unless Barbie looks at him. And I was thinking about how that was true for young women in, when I was in high school as well. In one way, they were very sure of themselves because they were growing breasts and getting hips, and they were aware right away that uh, that affected the, the young men around them. But also, there was all that focusing of attention on the young men. The mm -hmm. young women in Girl Island didn't do that. Uh, they were there. They were mm -hmm. very, very centered in who they were and in what they were doing. So that that was a profound difference. Mm -hmm. It didn't necessarily have anything to do with the real world. But while I was on Girl Island, I was going, I really like what these people are doing. I want to be like them. <laughs> <laughs> and I we'll get to this, but I think you you sort of find them in real life. Um, but oh, yes. at the time, <laughs> did you have did you have any real world girlfriends? I mean, geek boys tend not to spend much time with girls back then because there weren't a lot of geek girls. But did you have any female friends? Uh, yes, I, I did. That was because I had artistic sensibilities might be a, a good way to do it. So I tended to hang out with a few women who were also interested in performance, art, in the, in the general sense. And one or two young men who uh, felt the same way. I wouldn't call it a tight friendship, but it was definitely not being alone. There are a couple of independent factors that came together. One of them is that I was precocious. Um, and, and consequently, I learned to read at a much, much earlier uh, grade level than my colleagues if you will, did. And I was an intense reader. I really wanted to do nothing else. My father, who was an attorney and also something of an intellectual, had a fairly extensive library for the time. And I made my way through the whole damn thing. Every book I could reach at my rather small height, I read. And that included a bunch of scholarly works and things that he used in his law practice, like Psychopathia Sexualis, and the sexual question of the very early book by, by Edward Forel, uh, which at the time were the only uh, textbooks that uh, the legal profession had to go on uh, about sex offenders, and also happened to include uh, the idea of earnings, you know, early, early term for uh, homosexuality, and um, mentioned cross-dressing, of course, in a totally negative way, or loathsome, loathsome behavior, and uh, switched into Latin for the interesting parts. So I had to learn a little Latin in, in order to figure out what they were talking about. So by the time you get to the point where I'm having these interactions with these young women around puberty time, 
I've been through uh, years of therapy and testing and mostly testing to figure out why the hell I, I was so precocious and what was going on with me, you know, and what my IQ was, which turned out to be some horribly high number and didn't, doesn't mean anything in the real world, but threw everybody off. So this is all going on. So by the time I get there, I, I live in a different universe already. Transgender is like this maraschino cherry on this, on this churning other thing that, that is my life at that point. I am confronting thing in column A and thing in column B and thing in column C and D. And they're all going on while transgender is happening. And people tend to want the transgender thread. And that's fine. I can do that. But I do want you to understand, I haven't talked about this really. I, I want you to understand that that was not the only mm-hmm. puzzling thing going on in my life. I had to deal with the fact that I didn't talk the way other people in my life talked. And I mean that. It wasn't just that the women were being reticent about being smart. We, we were a low-class Jewish neighborhood. We were going to a fairly good high school, but uh, there were a lot of people playing catch-up. That's the milieu in which all of this is going on. You probably know that my other area of study is um, that I'm an educator of gifted children. And I do know, and you probably know, that, um, that there is a higher incidence of gender variation amongst higher IQ people. The other statistic that I would point out is that there was very possibly a a highly gifted girl in that group who was hiding it. Uh, I think that's very possible. For a while, I thought I had spotted her, in fact, but I'm I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm serious. (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of people don't really, and clearly your parents were in this camp because you know, the age they were living in, don't really understand the difference between gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. So at that point, were you feeling like you would be possibly a gay boy or were you, what was your self-awareness as, as everyone starts to date and, you know? I never thought I was a gay boy, but okay. I believe there were gay boys who thought I was a gay boy. And that led to a lot of disappointment. And that remained true when I was uh, engineering in mainstream rock in New York. There were a lot of men in in the business uh, who seemed to be convinced I was gay and who kept hitting on me. And clearly, I was giving off some kind of signal. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was unaware of what it was, and I kept going, what's going on? Uh, and, and, but I myself did not feel like a gay man at, at any time. I've been speaking with pioneering activist, artist, and academic Sandy Stone about her childhood. When we return, she will find and leave a career before finding herself anew after a devastating accident.
You've been listening to The Balbury. We'll be back after this short break. We're speaking with pioneering activist, artist, and academic Sandy Stone. At the time of this interview, a film about her successful and inspiring life is in production. But long before success, she was a confused boy, bruised by high school and her family's declining fortunes. I had no interest in going to college whatsoever. After I got out of high school, I planted a little red flag in my mind that said, you will never forget that this was the most unpleasant experience of your life. And you will never go back to education in any form. (laughs) Okay, Professor Stone, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, I basically hung out and tried to figure out how to hold a job. And then it turned out I couldn't hold a job. After a while, I decided to throw in my lot with an undergraduate college. Part of Sandy's early wanderings had to do with the fact that she didn't see herself in the world. I asked her what she saw when she looked at the women she knew at that time. Were they part of the image of womanhood that she had created on Girl Island? No, not at all. My mother and her relatives were stereotypical Jewish housewives of the time. There was very little of the Jewish housewife model that I identified with. And the percentage, I think, would be zero, if I were to uh, think about it. The, the girls and then later the women in Girl Island had nothing to do with that. I did later meet real women, if you will, who were exactly like the women in Girl Island. But that that came later. So you eventually did find something. You found a career as a recording engineer. In a state of, of utter Zen beginner's mind, uh, I, I left uh, Annapolis. I, I left with a, a typewriter case containing not a typewriter, but a change of underwear. And I went to New York. I opened the, the yellow pages to the first recording studio I saw in there. And I just went and knocked on their door and said, I am the greatest recording engineer in the world. <laughs> uh, which, of course, was a lie. It was Gary Kelgren came to the door and looked me up and down and, and said, can you fix anything? And I said, oh, sure, I can fix anything, and, which was partly true because I was a geek. <laughs> this part of Sandy Stone's story is a fascinating romp through the world of 60s rock and roll, from becoming Jimi Hendrix's recording engineer to Woodstock and more. But although fascinating, this was a period of time when Sandy was avoiding questions of her gender identity. A longer version of our conversation is archived on babblery.com in case you'd like to hear the details. For now, we take up Sandy's quest to find Girl Island in San Jose, California. Soon after attending Woodstock, Sandy had stepped off a chartered plane on the other side of the country. A friend had paid for the flight with a stolen credit card, and Sandy was coming off a days-long acid high with nothing but the clothes on her back, enough coins for a payphone, and the white pages. She looked up an old college friend and got back on her feet, re-establishing her career in San Francisco. So now I'm engineering in San Francisco. So now, to our mm-hmm. point, now I have a time to think. So mm-hmm. um, then I started poking around to find out 
if there were resources in San Francisco. So you have time to think, Mm -hmm. and you're still in this place where you hadn't had vocabulary for who you were, but now you're not amongst the Jewish housewives anymore, Um, (laughs) which I assume was... A great step forward. Yes. Yes. <laughs> because you you could see more models of what a woman was. Mm-hmm. Describe that time and then, and then how you got the information you needed. I began thinking, I need to do something about finding out who I am and what I am and figure out some way to stop running away from things. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were... It was enormous fun and very profitable to run away from things, but it was beginning to annoy me. So I looked around for what could possibly help me. Sandy found a place called the Transsexual Counseling Unit and met her first transgender woman, Jan Maxwell. So I went down there, and here's Jan behind the desk, and she's very presentable, traditionally passable female woman, if I may. We had a brief conversation. I'm in my high uh, male engineer's drag, engineer's boots, you know, this big black clunky leather thing, which is my rock and roll suit. And uh, I say, I think I'm transsexual, and I'm trying to explore more of what that means. And Jan said to me, so you think you're transsexual. Come with me. She took me out of the office and down the street, and we went into one of the row houses in the Tenderloin, and we went down two or three flights of stairs, illuminated by red light bulbs in the ceiling. While we're going down, this is turning into this highly mythological moment with Jan leading me down into hell. And sure enough, that's where we go. We enter a room in which there are people sitting on the floor. There's no furniture. They are doing things like knitting or writing in journals. They are trans women who have started to transition and then for one reason or another gotten stuck by running out of money or energy or time or whatever. Um, After the second house, uh, I go something like, you're the transsexual counseling unit. Why aren't you helping these people? What are you doing to help them? And Jan turns around to me and her face is just absolutely blank. And she says, I can't help them. Nobody can help them. And I said, well, why the hell are you showing me all this? And she says, because I want to show you what's in store for you. This is going to be you, and you better get used to it. Sandy ended up finding more information at a place called the Center for Special Problems, though again, she didn't quite find what she was looking for. So I walk in, and there's Angela Keys Douglas. Angela looks me up and down like like a dead fish and goes, so you think you're transsexual. Reflect on the transgender women that you had seen in that little misguided tour that you had. Okay. Can you explain 
what you saw when you saw those women and how you felt going, because we're going to move on to your next steps. And and what did you take away from that that experience? Uh, I took away that I had now met my first trans woman that I knew of. In some ways, she looked like a woman I might expect to pass on the street. But in other ways, she was totally crazy. And that meant she was not a role model for me. The only other trans women I met at that point in my life were the people Jan introduced me to in the basements of the Tenderloin. Mm -hmm. So from a very real point of view, I had no role models at all at that point. I must have had some kind of internal compass because I kept saying, I think I am transsexual and I want to find out what that means. Mm -hmm. To me, these were people who had fallen out of the world, and I did not want to fall out of the world. Uh, fortunately, I don't have to think about it for at least a year, um, because then I wind up in a hospital, flat on my back, and then a long time later in bed, not being able to move, and then for a while in a wheelchair, and then on and on, a devastating accident left Sandy Stone hospitalized and in recovery for a year, during which time she wasn't able to explore her womanhood any further. She had gone from the center of the music world, New York, to the center of the queer world, San Francisco, and now she had landed in the rural mountains that have become the center of the rest of her life, Santa Cruz County. I have managed to find out about the Sanford program. Eventually, I do go up there and I fill out all their intake forms. And I wind up seeing Don Laub. Laub was then the expert on sex reassignment surgery, but he had strong ideas of what a transgender person was, and Sandy didn't quite fit the bill. And I am still in my engineering drag. And Don looks at me again with that kind of puzzled, who are you, look, and says, well, what can I do for you? And I say, I'm interested in transition. And Don says, to what? He had his own ideas about what woman meant, what your ideas of manhood and womanhood were. Mm-hmm. And, and so what was his idea of what women meant? Women were slim and thin and blonde and wore a lot of makeup and high heels and dresses. <laughs> and I, I would say things like, Don, have you looked out the window recently? And he gave me the talk, which was, well, if you really want to be in the program, Here's what you have to do. You have to live full time as a woman, 24 hours a day for an entire year minimum before we will consider you for the program. I had no idea what would happen. I had no idea what I was doing. I was entering onto this adventure, but I knew that somewhere at the end of that was finding out what the hell Girl Island was and finding out what I was doing there. In the years that followed, Sandy transformed her physical appearance with hormones and electrolysis and built a life as a woman. After looking for and not finding the women she imagined on Girl Island, she started to see that woman in herself. A year passes during which I'm living with that roller coaster, that emotional roller coaster, and I'm beginning to see my face appearing in the mirror, which was an amazing experience. What did you see? This. 
up until that point, looking into the mirror, I did not see me. This is me. But as me gradually began to surface, like coming to the surface of a dark pool of water, as my face became clearer in the mirror, I began to say, yes, this is me. Whoever this is, is me. And I, if I were to try to break that down for you further, I don't think I could. It's some kind of mystical experience. It was amazing and magical and terrible and, uh, and, and painful and wonderful and, and the greatest adventure of my life. And toward the end of that phase of it, it began to involve other women and it turned into an even greater adventure. And that adventure has really never ended. I discovered that Girl Island was real. It, it, you made it real. It, I, I did something to it, but the boundaries between the reality and the myth and the, and, and the dream became very porous. And Girl Island not only came into the real world, but some magic elements of Girl Island came into the real world too. Sandy was finding the woman she was inside and bringing her to the surface. And once she did that, she was able to seek out a community of women like her. She found that community at Olivia Records, a lesbian collective that fortuitously needed a sound engineer. I think Olivia Records was an instantiation of Girl Island. We actually lived a lot of the things that I had done in Girl Island. I not only got to live Girl Island, but I discovered that a lot of, a lot of other women were living Girl Island too. During that entire period, I was preoperative. I had been quite honest with them about being trans before I ever uh, signed up for the collective, but I hadn't bothered to tell them I was preoperative because at first I didn't see it as being important. Mm -hmm. It was just a very private thing to me. I began to think, oh my God, they have a physical male in the collective and nobody knows it. I was incredibly fortunate in that I was what we call passable. I was very passable almost from the beginning, which kind of reinforced my feeling that I was doing the right thing, that this was me that I was uncovering. Sandy confided in some of the women that she hadn't yet found the money to finish her transition. These women, knowing that Sandy's preoperative state would be a huge issue if it was discovered, helped fund her surgery. She returned to Stanford and Don Laub, having socially transitioned her public persona to female four years prior, ready to complete her transition. The experiences of trans people make clear that gender is a separate entity from sexuality. Although the two are intertwined for many people, Sandy's transition led her to further understanding of her own sexuality. After a one-night stand with a man she refers to as a transy hag, a man who seeks out transgender women for sex, she entered a long period of considering herself a lesbian. I started almost immediately um, having passionate love affairs with women. And that went on for decades until I met my husband. I never looked back with, with uh, once I started having women lovers, 
uh, I said to myself, I thought, oh my God, this is fantastic. Uh, I never want to be in bed with a guy again. And uh, in fact, I didn't uh, until I met my husband and then a different thing clicked into mm-hmm. place. These days, TERFs, or trans-exclusive radical feminists, are a well-known phenomenon. But at the time of Sandy's transition, feminist communities had not yet confronted the question of what a woman is. Sandy's re-entry into the women's community of Santa Cruz forced the issue, and the vote that followed has become infamous in lesbian communities since. The two separatists in town called the meeting of what they called the women's community in which they voted on whether or not I would be considered a a woman and be a member of the women's community. The separatists talked a lot about how um, transsexuals are really men and how men divide the women's community and divide women and so on and so forth. And then they took the vote and it was 48 to two, the two being the two uh, radical separatists. So they demonstrated in fact I did divide the women's community. (laughs) (laughs) So um, with that, it being Santa Cruz, everybody just went on. I never saw (laughs) the separatists again. And from then on, I was officially a member of the community, whatever that may have meant. My life started. I mean that in a very serious way. I can throw everything away before... 1974. My life really started then. I would say that I became the person I I wanted to be. I really became a person, a human being, however you want to say that, when I became a woman. That that Mm -hmm. being a woman is, is part of that package. But for me, it happened to be a key to becoming all of who I am. When you're profiling a long life such as Sandy Stone's, you have to skip over a bit. In this case, about 40 years. In that time, Sandy had a female partner and became a mom. Then she wrote what is considered the founding document for the field of transgender studies, called The Empire Strikes Back, a post-transsexual manifesto. She got a PhD. She became a professor. She was controversial everywhere she went, but she was also loved by many, as she still is today. Surprising herself, she found herself in love with a man. She married Sinbi Ru Taran, who unfortunately died in 2016. In so many ways, her life became just a life. In her words, she fell into time. You've been listening to The Balbury. We'll be back after this short break. Sandy Stone's life is now one of a community elder, generous with her time and expertise. Whether called to counsel a community member about gender issues or to climb onto the roof of the radio station, Sandy is anything but retired. In this last segment of our talk, we address the world we find ourselves in now, the youth, the politics, and finally, what it means to be a woman. Uh, In many areas, many parts of the country, kids are learning earlier that gender is something 
sex is not something that you can necessarily play with, but that it's a much broader canvas than uh, their parents thought. And that gender is a complete playground in which uh, if they want to, they can take any position that feels good. And I think most of them are aware also that gender involves a um, uh, power differential and that that can very easily be seen in political terms and that it's important to see it in political terms. Looking at Sandy's life, it's easy to see why she's so comfortable with uncertainty and change. Though she's clear that the political battle is not yet over, she views young people's attitudes toward gender as a natural progression and doesn't seem to begrudge them the ease with which they find and then often change or discard their expressions of gender. I see young people treating gender a great deal more lightly than their parents do. Uh, gender is just another part of life that they can experiment with and enjoy more. I'm seeing a great deal more. I, I wouldn't even call it experimentation. Just a very generous ability for young people to be in the world in more ways that they want to, they feel comfortable with, or that they're willing to experiment with. It's just a more general flexibility. And I know that that's not true in some geographical areas in our country, but even in those, there's a lot more movement. Something you said made me think back to your own story. You, you actually knew, you can remember the first time you met another transgender person. Well, there is no way that a kid today could have the shock that I did when I, when I met my first trans person, because now you don't even have to be trans. You, you only have to be a kid to be gender fluid. It goes with the territory. And for a kid, I don't think it has that same weight of the label of gender fluidity that adults put on it with all of the terrible meanings that, uh, that older people tend to ascribe to such things. In, in general, the older generations are much, much more frightened of change. Um, thinking about change in something like gender for many older people, certainly not all, is frightening because it shakes some basic assumptions about the way the world works. There's this deep fear of young people altering their bodies using hormones or surgery. Can you speak a little bit about this fear and, and how I know that you feel that it's somewhat unfounded. So, so how, how would, how would you counsel someone if they said, they said, I'm afraid for my kid. I, I can't imagine counseling them unless they come in with a perfectly open mind, but many, uh, do not more and more are, I think, in particular, I think because of a lot of, uh, raging propaganda in mass media that is being propagandized for the wrong reasons, which is to say for political reasons. The idea of changing gender uh, gets confused with the idea of changing sex, which plugs into deep 
fears about the structure of our social system itself. And that has to do with deep power differentials. Our social system runs on power differentials. And it's always a one-up, one-down. And if we threaten those at a deep level, particularly when they are tied into feelings of shame and disgust with regard to certain body parts, which are very, very hard to deal with, then you, you have a terribly explosive combination. We don't, at the moment, have good tools for dealing with that. I know that we need to do it. I don't have any easy answers. To a certain extent, I have spoken to people who are simply waiting for the older generation to die off, as some of them have come to think of uh, the, the, the radical extreme right, uh, which is driven by certain current, uh, very charismatic to some people, leaders, uh, where there are certain people who observe these movements from a distance who say either you have to massively deprogram individuals, which is difficult or impossible, or you simply have to wait for them to die. With it, it's possible that that's also true with regard to a generation that, for very good reasons to them, treats anything having to do with gender and or sex, because they can't really distinguish between those, as something which is literally unspeakable. Mm -hmm. We need to be patient. We need to do what we can, but what we can will not always be adequate or enough. Mm -hmm. We just have to try. Yeah, and I, I mean, I can tell you that it's not a lost cause for a lot of people because I know of a lot of older people who would have been horrified only, you know, a small number of years ago to think that they'd know, be related to a transgender person and who now are accepting and loving. So it can happen. But politically, it seems like we're going in way the wrong direction in a lot of places. But I wanted to ask you, besides that right wing, there's another group of people who are still uncomfortable and who are generally tend more politically left wing, which would be women and especially feminist women and very especially lesbian women who fear that a fair number of the people who are identified female at birth and are transitioning to male might be influenced by more by dislike of the way the culture treats them as females than and less by a feeling of actually being transgender. Can you speak to that briefly? Yes, uh, I think that's true to a certain extent, a minor extent, but, but yeah. And um, then you have to think about, okay, then what do we do? Do we say, all right, you can't transition because your reasons aren't right? That's a very slippery path. Uh, we've been down that path, and and it does not work. And I hope that um, 
people examining that situation will learn from uh, the, the very recent experience about trying to gatekeep with regard to who is an actual transgender who is entitled to uh, support and who is not. You're never going to be able to make that cut. A lot of the concern comes from this idea of will they regret it? What do you have to say about the whole regret thing? I mean, coming from the fact that that you are the age you are, you you know, you you're you're someone who's gone through a lot of things that maybe you regret some of it. What do you do with it? I regret that bad pickled herring a few days ago. <laughs> um, as you said a little while ago, we we all make mistakes. So what? You know, we we get to make them to a certain extent. We try to prevent other people from making them. But uh, in, in general, people acknowledge that w we make mistakes. And if we don't get to make faux pas, if we don't get to fall over on our bikes once in a while, we never get any better at riding them. The only difference with regard to transgender is that we do it against a social or cultural background of fear and loathing and disgust that has to do with horrible shame that's been inflicted on us all at an early age and that 99% of us spend the rest of our lives trying to crawl out of. We just need to keep doing it. We need to keep crawling because that cesspool is horrible and the further out of it we can crawl the better off we are. But attacking it structurally, getting at the heart, if I may, you know, the, the religious political structure that supports that disgust, that cesspool, that's extremely hard. We, as, at, we are almost never going to get at that. We're simply going to have to try to work against it as background, as individuals. And hope that maybe in some sweet future, enough people will work against it that it will disappear. But I don't think that's going to happen in our lifetimes. So I have, I have one final question for you. It's a simple one, but probably also a complex one. For you personally right now, what is a woman? Let me uh, make a short digression. I tend to be asked, what is transgender studies? And my answer is transgender studies is whatever transgender scholars do. When the people I identify as transgender scholars do something else, then that will be transgender studies. There is no single universal answer to what is a woman. That would be adopting a monistic view, which is against everything I stand for. Identities of all kinds are situated, they're contextual, they're local, and they may bump up against definitions somewhere else. I can't guarantee that. I have, I have no way to guarantee that. That's true with everything. And the more we try to put a one-size-fits-all definition on any of our categories, the more we're simply hurting them. And 
by reflexiveness hurting ourselves. So my answer to what is a woman is what the people around me are doing who identify as women are doing. Now, I could make a larger statement and a more useful politically situated statement, which I think you will discover will not help very much, which is if someone is oppressing you, chances are you're a woman. But as I said, that one won't help you very much. But what does help you? How do you think of yourself? Just not politically, just who you are, what you are. I have found a place in relationship to my social world, the people I love, and uh, the world in which I work and manifest whatever I manifest. That's what you see. And that happens to fall under a general label of woman. For most people, I think, performatively, looking in on the situation, uh, they will agree. Some people will not. They will vehemently disagree for their own reason. What I see looking back at them is that they have been wounded in some very deep way by someone who reminds them of me. And it's not up to me in any way to deny them what they need around that wounding. I can only honor them and ask them not to put their response to that onto me. I feel like that you, you have found a place where you are somehow. So, you know, you talked about the, the shame and the discomfort that so many people have around the issues of sex and gender, but you've found a place that works for you. Oh, I have. Took a long time. It took a lot of work, took a lot of effort. It was filled with pain and joy and uh, various kinds of ecstasy and surprise. And I think the most important thing of all was surprise, because good surprise is hard to find. I have an identity that works for me, and that's all I can ask of the world, of, the, of, of that particular chunk of, of the world, is that I found an identity that works for me, and apparently uh, it's comfortable enough for other people that it works for them too. Uh, I think that's fine. I wish it for everyone.
My deepest thanks to Sandy Stone for sharing her life experiences and wisdom, as well as helping to found a radio station held together with duct tape and goodwill. Watch for the forthcoming film, Girl Island, directed by Marjorie Vecchio. The song Be My Girl by Karen Ellis is from the Free Music Archive. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Balbury. Subscribe to The Balbury on your favorite podcast platform or visit B-A-B-B-L-E-R-Y.com to access more episodes. The Babbleery is produced with support from KSQD Radio in Santa Cruz, California. 